Hey there, you're listening to A Time of Monsters, a podcast about our descent into barbarism and the radical left struggle against it. I'm Aaron, and we have another very special episode for you guys this week, the third installment of Planting the Seed, a mini-series focusing on the organizing work of Democratic Socialists of America chapters throughout the country. Check out the first two episodes with Matt T. and Kenzo Shibata of Chicago DSA if you haven't already. This time, I get local with Jasmine and Kelsey, members of DARC, which stands for Defunding the Atlanta Police Department and Refunding Communities, to discuss how the group started and the origins and history of policing. We also talk about gentrification and the state of policing in Atlanta specifically, the APD's tactics and the tactics needed to dismantle them. Now, I know I say this before every interview, but this was definitely one of my favorites, not only because Jasmine and Kelsey are so well-informed, but obviously very passionate and dedicated to the cause. So I hope you enjoy. I joined DSA because when I moved to Atlanta, I wanted to find organizing, like not work, but like mm-hmm. something to do. So I joined a Metro Atlanta DSA and well, actually I started working on Georgia for Bernie right before his campaign got here, almost a year before his campaign got here and started a, by the way, I'm sorry if there are helicopters, there's probably <laughs> some, which is fitting for the conversation. It's, it's there's probably police searching for something. Yeah. 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 Um, but, um, yeah, I uh, I ended up joining because of all the people that I'd met who were members of Metro Atlanta DSA. And uh, I was like, damn, dude, like, I want to continue, like, even though Bernie, you know, didn't get the, pri- the the nomination, you know, he didn't win the primary, same thing in 2020. I think that DSA is a launching point, not only for this nascent socialist project, you know, that's been kind of bubbling since, I mean, you could really say, like, the WTO in 93... And then occupy, you know, if you're like, you know, closer to my age, right? <laughs> um, but also like a movement for social justice, like Black Lives Matter started and occupied too under the Obama mm-hmm. administration, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of that energy, um, I mean, all of that energy and even people who weren't uh, into the activism that happened like under, you know, Trayvon Martin, right? And like, you know, Sandra Bland and like so many others, right? before uh it it was funneled into like this movement over the summer Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and uh Mm -hmm. i guess that's where the best place to start uh Mm -hmm. so arc which stands for defund apd refund communities which is a an organization out of uh atlanta dsa uh how did that how did that start oh gosh Jasmine, do you want to go or should I go? I guess you guys should introduce yourselves before you start so people know who you are. Sure, yeah. My name is Jasmine. I'm from here, from Atlanta. Um, one of the core organizers with Dark. Kelsey, do you want to do your intro and then I'll give a little context for how we got started? Yeah. Um, I'm Kelsey. My pronouns are they, them. I'm also a core organizer with Dark and on the Atlanta DSA Steering Committee. Yeah, last summer, basically... I don't know. Everyone was obviously fed up with what was going on. And I was trying to figure out I'd never done any like official organizing work before, but I was trying to figure out like amongst my friends, what could we all do together to make some kind of impact? And I was seeing a lot of energy around the budget campaign. Um, so last year they were focused on the budget for 2021. Um, and I thought that was a good place to plug in. So I put an all call out on my IG story, like any 
friends in Atlanta want to start organizing, want to start making phone calls and kind of supporting folks who have been doing this work for a while around this budget campaign. Um, and then a friend of a friend plugged me into DSA and was like, they're working on some similar issues. Y'all should click up. And that's how I got plugged into the DSA work. And then we kind of combined efforts and formalized the campaign in calling it dark. Yeah. And I sort of started everything on the other end of the spectrum. I think, honestly, everyone was looking for somewhere to plug in last summer just because everything like coalesced into this one moment, like with the pandemic and the uprisings. And no, not to cut you off, but I just want to add, like, we can talk about that later, too. Oh, yeah. Like, especially with not just the uh, the formation of dark, but just Mm -hmm. like what we saw over the summer, Mm -hmm. like COVID being a factor in that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people like who I don't want to say a lot of people, but like myself, like not going to work. Right. Like. My mm-hmm. restaurant closed mm-hmm. down. Yeah. A lot of people showed up because of that, but sorry, continue. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. And I think, you know, we were stuck at home, not at work. Um, I know that I was personally feeling completely helpless because there's only so many protests you can go to. Like, you can't go yeah. to a protest yeah. every day for the rest of your life. It's not sustainable and arguably. Even like- if you do, sometimes, like, you know, the the protest or the activity that you're engaging mm-hmm. in, like, mm-hmm. it doesn't, like, uh, come to fruition in terms of the goals that you want to see. So yeah. it can be like a, like very disillusioning, right? Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah, that was that was a huge thing for me. Like I had been protesting since Trayvon Martin. I was recounting in my head. I stayed abroad in Cape Town. I protested there for their mm. campus efforts around roads must fall. And I was just thinking in my head, like I've been all these protests and yet the same problems continue. Like mm-hmm. what else to your point, Kelsey, like what else? can I be doing that feels more effective? Yeah. 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 And you start to feel like it's like the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again. Um, And so I think a lot of people came to dark, like with the same thing in mind, like we need to do something that's sustainable that we can like work towards a bigger goal. um, Something more than just like going outside and yelling. Um, And so dark sort of came together. It came together through Metro Atlanta DSA. And then we plugged in with uh, Sean and Jasmine, our other two core organizers. And we really just like hit the ground running just because everything, I don't know, I think there's this sense of like desperation. We have to do something now. Like the Atlanta budget is being decided on now. We've got to make phone calls. We've got to like activate people. Um, And so I think the first thing our campaign started off doing was our live panels. So we started this series of educational live panels um, covering topics like what does it mean to defund the police? Like just the basics to get people like started having conversations about this sort of stuff. That's important work too, like defining like because a lot of uh, like even left liberals are quote progressives, but especially like uh, during the uh, 2020 election, the down ballot races, right? Um, that like, I forget her first name, but Spamberger, I think from Virginia, she's a former CIA agent, by the way, right? I I, I don't hold me to that, but I think (laughs) like she's from Virginia, but like her name is Spamberger. And she said that on a call with the House Democrats who were uh, doing a a autopsy, right, of their abysmal down ballot results, she said that defund the police, right, had hurt her, right? And I think it's important, right, to Attach that language Mm -hmm. to an actual uh, material project that is not passive in the sense that, honestly, like Black Lives Matter as a phrase is, right? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. I've had people Mm -hmm. say to me, why why shouldn't it be Black Lives Matter too, right? But when you add an action to it, 
defund. I know, right? Like it was insane. And it was actually my mentor uh, who said that to me. And I was like, God damn it. Uh, that's no. why I dropped out. No, that's not why I dropped out. But, it's why, yeah. but uh, you know, it was, uh, I think it's, it's helpful to explain to people what defunding actually means, which I mean, our like actual goal is abolition, right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. like we all want to overthrow us here, right? And many people uh, want to overthrow the uh, capitalist system, right? Especially the racial capitalist system, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you you can't have that without uh, having an honest discussion about the role of police mm-hmm. in America. And it's helpful to you know uh, really be nuanced about this language with people who are terrified of like fear mongering, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been one of our biggest challenges, I think. And like one one other element of our campaign is that we canvass neighborhoods, we knock on doors and we talk to people about like, what are your experiences with policing in your neighborhood? And like, once you really get them talking, you know, people acknowledge like the police are racist, almost like most people we, we talk to can acknowledge that on some level. Um, and when you hit them with the word defund, their first response is always hesitation or like they don't like that word. Like they think it will shut down the conversation. Yeah. But once you actually start to explain to them, like, no, this police budget is massive. Look at like, look at this military equipment. Look at these, look at all these surveillance cameras. That's unnecessary. And then you get And it's them- also not preventing crime, which we'll get into yeah, with the article right. that, that you was, co-wrote, Kelsey. <laughs> that, that was the whole thing. It's like explaining that more policing does not equal safety. Like mm-hmm. people who want to abolish the police aren't saying we want to live in this dangerous society where everyone can just be violent and, you know, do whatever they want. It's about understanding that policing does not actually prevent violence. Like the root of harm is typically poverty or mental health mm. issues or something more systemic than the actual act that we're calling criminal Um, And, you know, the whole large conversation around like criminalization of poverty and how capitalism causes things to be criminal and not others. Um, We'll get into that more, I'm sure. But (laughs) that's kind of part of how we have to try to describe this so that it's Mm -hmm. not like we don't want there to be any safety in your community. We Mm -hmm. want it to actually be safe, Mm -hmm. which the police do not contribute to. They make it worse. Exactly. To add to that, I want to read this quote that gives historical context to this this uh, fear mongering about defunding the police. Right. Um, quote, and this is from the article that I think Kelsey, you co-wrote, uh, both of us did, uh, me and Jess. Both of y'all did. Mm-hmm. Oh shit. From the main line. Mm-hmm. And I'll add in the show notes. The title is despite opposition HB 286, which we'll talk about moves through state legislature. And, um, there's this, uh, before we even talk about the bill, there's this historical context that's provided in which you guys say, quote, there is no evidence suggesting a strong correlation between public spending and public safety. Violent crime in Atlanta has decreased by 82% between 1989 and 2018, and yet the Governmental Accountability Office found that less than 2% of this reduction can be attributed to policing. Police do not prevent crimes from occurring, and even when they do respond to a crime after it's been reported, the likelihood that investigations lead to results or accountability remains low. So, like, talk about that a little bit, too, because I think that uh, being from New York, I moved here like about seven years ago. But in New York, you know, that's the origination of uh, broken windows policing in mm-hmm. the 80s. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the the fear that Americans all across the country, but especially those in what we would term the Midwest, which really doesn't even make sense. Right. Or middle America. Right. It's these, uh, this idea that urban centers, especially uh, coastal areas. Right. Are rife with crime particularly committed by black people, right? You know, like you have like, you know, so many uh, presidential campaigns 
from George H.W. Bush, right, with Willie Horton, mm-hmm. right, to uh, Bill Clinton, obviously, who weaponized, like, you know, not just the war on poverty, right, but the war on crime through the militarization of the police. But it's like you have this misconception that because I talk to people all the time, right? Like even my mom, even though she's starting to kind of shift a little bit, right? But a lot of people who will say, well, if we don't have police, then who will stop violent crime? Like rapists, serial killers. And I'm like, motherfucker, first of all, those are the cops. right?" Right. And secondly, right? We know for a fact that this broken windows policing, right? It does not work. And it's actually a project of gentrification, Mm -hmm. which led to the death of Breonna Taylor. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, that's why I think it's so important to talk about the history of policing, especially when you're talking to older black people about why it's important to abolish the police. Because I think we forget policing came out of slave patrols, right? So no institution that originated to capture black bodies and sell them into chattel slavery should ever be considered something that promotes safety <laughs> or calm or peace. Mm. And so the the purpose of policing is to protect capitalism. Mm-hmm. That's why you see the police out during protests. They're not trying to keep protesters safe. They're trying to protect private property, protect exactly. the stores mm-hmm. from being, quote unquote, looted. Right. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just interesting. I think it's important to explain like the reason why policing doesn't lead to lower crime is because the institution of policing is not actually about keeping people safe. It's about Mm -hmm. maintaining the social hierarchy that we currently have. Yeah. And it also comes down to crime being just a social construct. Like who decides what is a crime? And oftentimes they're just deciding what a crime is arbitrarily so they can target certain communities and then incarcerate people and separate them from society. And it's just, it's weaponized. However, like, the capitalist class wants to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we talk about that a lot in reference to like the recession, the housing crisis, how many bankers went to jail? Zero. <laughs> like, if yeah, that yeah. is not, if Bernie, the Bernie Madoff, who died recently, like was the only person, and not because of the uh, the the banking crisis, right? right? Which isn't even a crisis because that, it was a manufactured crisis. But he's right. the only dude that went to jail because like he was ripping off other he fucking was rich people. celebrities. Yeah, exactly. 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 So it's like if you destabilize the entire housing market and you there are no consequences for that, in fact, you're rewarded financially for that, then why are we even talking about what a crime is and isn't? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I think it just, you know, goes to your point, Kelsey, that the things that we consider criminal are the things that poor people, black and brown people are most likely to engage in as survival tactics to be able to live in the system that intentionally, you know, sucks resources out of our communities in attempting to survive those systems, our actions are criminalized. Exactly. And and before I jump to the budget, uh, and I'm going to again bring up uh, some quotes from the article that you guys wrote, which is, I'm going to link it again. It's amazing. Yo. I really <laughs> appreciate that there's like at least some independent uh, publication yes. that's like letting people know about, especially in the South. Yo. Shout out to you know? Mainline, big time. Indeed. Big yo, time. Shout out to Asia. Yo. I actually you, met Asia. her at Elmira one time, yo. And uh, <laughs> man, I should have hit her back up because she, I Do talked it. to her and I wanted to, uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to write for them, man, but like I was so, but yeah, shout do out to Mainline too. I'll, I'll link to Yeah, I should. Yo, I'll link to that as well. But um, I think one thing I did want to say is that uh, when when people talk about capitalism, I, I really like the term racial capitalism, right? I think it's Cedric Robinson who wrote Black Marxism, which was uh, sort of a critique of a Eurocentric Marxist analysis of capitalism that sort of did not 
address directly the racialization of capitalism, right? Um, through a racial hierarchy, right? Even the fact that the exploit, the whole Western world really is built on the exploitation of black and brown labor, right? Um, and I, I think that it's helpful to, especially with older black folk, to explain to them that the police are not here when you see protect and serve, right? On that van, right? That's protect private property and serve right. racial capitalist hegemony, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, and the best way to do that, as you were saying, Kelsey, earlier, is, yo, it, it's not helpful to like, you know, hand somebody like a pamphlet, right? Like, yeah. sure, you can do that, right? Or tell someone to read Cedric Robinson, you know, but it's more helpful to ask them about their experiences with the police, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think when people really interrogate it and you ask someone, Hey, when has a cop ever kept you safe? Yeah. Never. Yeah. Not, yeah. no, not even a lot of white people. Like, <laughs> Cops yeah, never yeah. done anything for me. <laughs> nah, you don't. You don't see a cop in your rearview mirror pulling you over and you'd be like, "Thank God!" Right? Like, like, no one has ever done that. You know what right. I mean? Um, so I want to jump to talking about specifically Atlanta uh, and the current state of policing uh, with the APD budget. So in 2021, the budget was uh, 218 million, mm-hmm. increased from 204 mm-hmm. million the previous year. 204 million. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. 204 million. So uh, Mariah Parker, friend of the show. Actually, uh, in Athens, at least spearheaded Mm -hmm. like a reduction of the police budget. But we haven't I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but we haven't really seen that move in Atlanta. As far as I know, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Right. Like and this fucking blew my mind, yo. But um, not only has she expressed like support for the police during the protests of the summer where motherfuckers were getting tear gas. Mm -hmm. I got shot with a fucking rubber bullet. I mean, it was insane to see like these you know, special bodies of armed men, right? Assault people, like just out in the street protesting for black lives, right? But I remember that they actually got a bonus, right? Yeah. Or some yeah. kind of like, yeah. They got a pay raise. A morale They booster. got a pay raise because, yo, and a lot of cops, <laughs> I don't know what precinct or what area it was, but cops in Atlanta, there was one night in the summer where I, I it, it was on Twitter, like it was trending, like cops in Atlanta actually refused to go to fucking work. The right? blue yes. flu, they called it. I remember it. that. Yes, yes, yes. Talk about that a little bit then, especially in the context of like, again, to uphold racial capitalism, especially in Atlanta, right? Which a project of that is real estate capitalism, right? And gentrification, right? Talk about a little bit about how the political elite in the city, the city too busy to hate, right? Has actually aided in not only the militarization of police, but especially the crackdown on protests over the summer. So what's amazing is despite all the fear mongering that's happened since this past summer with the Richard Brooks bill, despite all the fear mongering, policing and surveillance in Atlanta has actually just increased. All of the city council members have just doubled down on their stance, on their pro-police stances, not like we don't we haven't even gotten started on the conversation around closing the Atlanta City Detention Center and all the pushback yeah. that's that's happened around that. Well, Kelsey, can I ask you real quick to uh-huh. clarify for our uh, yeah. listeners who don't mm-hmm. know, what is the Rashad Brooks bill? OK. And like who was Rashad Brooks? And like, talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit. So Rashad Brooks is a man who was killed by a policeman over the summer. It just added to ongoing on, uh, uprisings that were already happening during the entire summer. And um, in response to that, in response to like cries around the country to defund the police, one of our city council members, Jennifer Ide, 
proposed legislation, which would withhold money from the general fund of the city council budget, not the police budget, Mm. um, and keep that money on hold while research was done, basically on policing statistics in, um, in the city of Atlanta, hold that money until December, at which point they would vote on the final police budget that ended up not passing. And the bill kind of came up. It resurfaced again, spearheaded, I think, by Councilmember Antonio Brown um, under the name the Richard Brooks bill. Uh, ultimately, it didn't get passed at all. And so the the police budget did increase by 6% uh, no. for fiscal year 2021. No, no. And, and I just want to like note to people, too, uh, that... Uh, Maybe I'll do an episode on it later, but the history, the political history of uh, Atlanta in terms of the black uh, ruling elite and the white ruling elite. Right. And this like kind of it's not even really a tenuous alliance. It really is for the proliferation of capital. Right. For industries based here. So I think that like the fact that it got voted down in the city council, which as 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 sure as far as I know, is uh, at least half. Like, you know, black people of color. Yeah. Right? Am I? I think so. Am, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, 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 yeah, it's insulting. Right. Yeah. It's insulting yeah. That's I mean, the case. That, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the truth about Atlanta is it doesn't matter that the mayor's black and named Keisha because she's mm-hmm. not looking out for the interests of poor black Atlantans. That's why we got the moniker city too busy to hate because we had a demographic of elite blacks who are willing to forego actual racial equity for the benefit of the business community. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of that is connected to, you know, the AUC love HBCUs, but like they perpetuate capitalism um, and black people's kind of role in attempting to ascend the ladder. And I think it connects directly to how middle-class black people talk about policing, right? Because now you do, you may be able to have a home. You may have been able to purchase property. One of the only ways that black people in this country can build wealth, right? And so now you have something that you think, requires policing in order to keep you safe. Um, And so I think there's just this horrible loop of Black elites, Black upper middle class people um, aspiring to whiteness in a way that ultimately doesn't serve their interests and further disenfranchises other Black people. I just want to add a quote to people, man, from Fred Hampton, who was the the chairman of the uh, Chicago uh, Black Panther Party, who said that uh, we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, right. but we're going to fight it with socialism, right? Yeah. I think that like that's, uh, you know, especially because I remember when uh, there was that mayoral election going on. And uh, I mean, I was all in for Vincent Fort. Like I've met him. <laughs> He's come to DSA like functions. Vincent. And, uh, you know, instead there was Mary Norwood and uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Mary Norwood, like, didn't I think identify as Republican, but everybody knew that she She's was a closet right? Republican. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Especially because like, I mean, this is the, the supposed black Mecca. Right. Uh, but uh, Keisha, I think, you know, black liberals like got excited about it because like this is one of the few cities in the country. Right. Where we have like a, not just a black mayor, but a female black mayor. Right. And I think like it has to kind of be acknowledged how and we'll talk about this. We want to transition into this because uh, gentrification and policing Right. In Atlanta, especially. Right. In these uh, gentrifying metropolitan areas. Right. Those those two things are intertwined. But um, Keisha Lance Bottoms, I don't think that anyone can like honestly say when you look at not just her connections with Kasim Reed and all that sus ass shit, but especially <laughs> like this deference to like real estate capital. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think that anyone say that she's like for black people. And uh, 
I'm going to ask you guys if you know about this. I know this isn't uh, this isn't something that was kind of prepared to talk about, but just uh, I remember this article from Mother Jones last year about this uh, APD officer uh, who quit the force because mm-hmm. he was strictly encouraged, right, and would have been penalized if he didn't heavily police the Bedford Pines apartment, like off of Ponce de Leon, and uh, this this sort of policing which paves the way for gentrification, right, which tears down like public housing for luxury apartments. Like that was also instrumental in the death of Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. Right. So can y'all like talk a little bit about like especially the APD's tactics in over policing black neighborhoods as a way to not only pave the way for the belt line, right? In these neighborhoods that are very close to the belt line, but gentrification writ large, like throughout Atlanta? Yeah, I mean, it's something I think about a lot. And we have all of these, again, we talk about what's legal and what's illegal, things like code enforcement, right? So if your house isn't up to code or doesn't or offends your new gentrified neighbors, then they can report you. And APD legally carries out those code enforcement. And that Mm. can lead to foreclosures that can lead to evictions. And it's not because people don't want nice things. It's because people who are in poverty don't have tens of thousands of dollars to redo the external facade of their homes to please their new white neighbors, you know, aesthetic choices, right? Um, Like I said, we see it with evictions too, policing, police officers carrying out evictions. It's a way to clear black people from the neighborhoods that they've been investing in over decades. Now that we have younger white people who want to live in the city again, what do we do? We reform the city to look like a place where they want to live. Exactly. We add bike lanes, you know, we mm-hmm. add all these trails and parks. Little boutique like shops, bake shops or whatever <laughs> the fuck you want. Where, like, where the yogurt. fuck is the supermarket at, bro? Who asked for where the fuck is the supermarket at? A microbrewery. Want the next like a leftist mayor whose platform is just no more breweries? Yeah, because they're, they're yeah, like yeah. the the pinpoint of all gentrification in the city. Exactly, breweries and bike lanes. Like, yeah, where are you buying your bike, bike lanes? lanes. Yeah. Breweries and bike lanes. DSA caucus. Actually, let's add that. Yeah. I'm like, you add a bike lane in this random neighborhood, you're going to bike to the highway. Like, I don't know, like, where are you even yeah. going? Um, but yeah, that's, that's how policing and gentrification go together. You know, upper class people decide that they don't like the people who live in their neighborhood, the neighborhood that they moved into from the suburbs, most likely. And they link up with law enforcement to get those people out by legal channels. That's why we have to question Mm -hmm. again, what we consider legal and illegal. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I just want to bring up a quote uh, from uh, Vincent Fort, uh, who was a former state senator. I forget from what district, but he ran for mayor mm-hmm. um, a couple of years ago. And he said, uh, we know that crime is socially constructed, at least determine what actions and behaviors are considered criminal and always conveniently leave out the things they do to harm others. For example, wage theft, the 2008 housing crisis, uh, Walmart paying their workers so little they have to rely on public assistance. Like, all of these things are absent from the conversation of, especially Atlanta, which I'm not sure if it still is at the top of the list, but at least since a couple of years ago, has been at the top of the list of the largest uh, wealth and income inequality gap in mm, the country. Yeah. Right? We might be number and, one. I'm not yeah, sure. I think we, we still might be number one. Yo, I'll tell y'all, like, just as an anecdote, uh, when I used to chill in Brooklyn or Manhattan or wherever it was within the five boroughs, but especially Brooklyn, Manhattan, the Bronx, you know, there are like unhoused people all the time, right? 
there are people like asking for money all the time. And moving here, though, I guess because it's a smaller city, you know, and it's like denser in that way, I guess. Right. It's just insane. You know, especially given the history that I know of like clearing all of the public housing in the 90s, right, for the Olympics here, right? And especially from the work that I've done with the Housing Justice League, it's just so insane that like this is supposed to be like this, you know, beacon of the South, right? Again, the city too busy to hate. And yet like we have this fucking project of like just like eliminating undesirable populations and using police so-called undesirable populations, I might add, but using police to do that. And it's it, it doesn't make anyone safer, Mm-mm. you know, Mm-mm. at all. Yeah, it, to me, it just goes back to the idea, once again, that crime is a social construct. And when we talk about crime, we are not thinking about the things that keep people alive and healthy, like food, housing, clean water, education. We don't consider any of that. We just make up like oh, your, you know, your windows are broken. You know, we're going to give you a, you know, a warrant now, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and to talk about the housing situation, I mean, Atlanta's been ground zero for all of the liberal nonsense around affordable housing. Um, The first Hope 6 project, I believe, was the Centennial Apartments um, right across the street from Georgia Tech's campus. And that was a huge project piloted by Bill Clinton. Essentially, we're going to demolish all of the existing public housing because the problem with public housing is that poor people are all together and that's concentrated poverty. And, you know, they have a horrible culture of poverty and that's what's causing Mm -hmm. all these issues. So we're going to tear it down and we're going to build what we call mixed income housing, essentially a pathway to gentrification. We're going to create these mixed income developments where we have some market rate some affordable housing so that the poor people can learn the good behaviors of the middle income people who decide to move here. And that's the model that's been completely adopted in how we even think about affordable housing at a federal level. Um, And Mm. that spawns gentrification because you're essentially saying you only deserve nice things if you're in proximity to wealth and oftentimes if you're in proximity to whiteness. You don't, your neighborhood doesn't deserve anything in the absence of white people. And so it creates this culture of pathologizing people who are poor and not recognizing that they're not the cause of their circumstances, right? Like if someone comes and robs you, they didn't rob you because they're an inherently bad person. They robbed you because they're surviving, trying to survive a system of inequity that left them with nothing but the choice to take from someone else. Exactly. Um, exactly. And so, yeah, these things all just, they, they weave together in like this really sadistic way. To add to that, before we jump to like dark and what you guys are doing, uh, while you were talking, I was just thinking about the Beltline, right? Uh, who was uh, Ryan Gravel, I think is his name. He was a student at yeah. Georgia Tech and I think this was his thesis, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he actually ended up pulling out like a couple of years ago because he saw that uh, it was developers, right, in these uh, community like associations, which historically, if you look back in the South specifically, these homeowners associations uh, have been stewarded by racist ass white people who didn't want <laughs> black people to move into their neighborhoods, right? But um, Ryan Gravel, who came up with this idea of the Beltline um, wanted to incorporate uh, not only green space, right, and a traversable path around the city, you know, um, that linked like main neighborhoods like around Atlanta, but also he wanted to include like mixed income housing or some percentage of affordable housing as well. 
And I think that the Beltline has really been a project, right? Besides, that's a whole other conversation, but besides like the incorporation of cities or, or neighborhoods like Buckhead, you know, the project to make uh, a Buckhead city, you know, which would be like 74% white, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is uh, like, that's a little bit sus, man. You know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> but it's the Beltline specifically like has been uh, retooled and used and co-opted, right? Not to say that... Ryan Gravel was like an eco-socialist or a socialist or anything, right? But he really came in with this, frankly, naive perception that he would be able to accomplish this goal of making the city accessible for like everyone, right? Regardless of your income. Talk about that a little bit, man, and the the Beltline and uh, how that is also this project in uh, police gentrification in Atlanta. Yeah, I mean, I don't really want to give Ryan Gravel any props because he's also involved in the redevelopment <laughs> of the West End Mall, which is... God damn, I didn't know that. Yeah, thank you, thank so. you, Jasmine, for all that. See, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's I why wanna... I had y'all on, because y'all know your shit. Thank you. But, but yeah, I mean, that's... The Beltline is one of the most significant causes of gentrification in the city, timed perfectly with the housing crisis, which drove down housing prices, allowing investors to come up and buy a lot of housing stock that they sat on waiting for the opportunity to resell at a higher value, the Beltline provided that opportunity. It created the interest in people leaving the suburbs, wealthier people to come back into the city because now it would have, like you said, green space, trails, bike lanes, all of these amenities um, that most folks would love to have in their communities. But it drove up housing prices in the areas proximate to the Beltline by sometimes up to like 130%. And that matters because the people who live in those homes are now paying significantly higher property taxes because now their house is worth more. But they're not making any more money than they were before those property values went up. And so now they can't pay their property taxes and now they can be foreclosed upon. And now wealthier people can come in, purchase their foreclosed home and, you know, completely displace existing residents. And reshape the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like they're yeah. it's not like they're friendly neighbors. Like it's not like they're coming yeah, in yeah, to yeah. join the fabric of the community. Mm-hmm. They're they're copying and pasting what they wanted from, you know, what they had in Cobb County into Oakland City, into West End, into Pittsburgh, you know. Now we see that whole development mm. of Pittsburgh Yards. Mechanicsville, Adair Park, yeah. 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 They truly are like the the vanguard of like gentrification, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, you send like, you know, these uh, uh, well-meaning, like, you know, especially young professionals. Right. Uh, this happened in New York. Right. Uh, Soho, which is like south of Houston Street in New York, like all of the shops there that are like now um, owned by like designer companies. And Soho is known as sort of like this uh, this like kind of little mini Broadway that's a little bit alternative, right? Like, and this is again in New York, but just historically, and I think you could see this in Pond City Market, like uh, the fact that in Pond City Market at the the floor level, there's a, a train engine, right? And what gentrification does is it co-ops working class aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm. So all in Soho, all of these fucking like uh, uh, buildings that are now like, you know, fucking like Top Man or H&M or whatever yeah, the fuck, yeah. they used to be initially like factories, which then in the 60s and the 70s uh, became housing for artists yeah. and like, you know, these avant-garde like creatives, right? And all of that kind of got retooled and like fed back to people who wanted to return after white flight to the city, right? Because, as you said, Jasmine, because of these anemones and also because of the cultural significance. And I guess, I guess the word I'm looking for is um, conspicuous consumerism, mm-hmm. right? 
of living in a location like this while displacing everyone, right? Who like lived there before, you know? Like, I, I don't know. It just blows my mind with the Pond City Market thing, man, because I hate that fucking place. <laughs> I fucking hate it. it I sucks. hate that whole stretch. And when I'm that, when I first time I noticed that train engine, I was like, dude, like, this is fucked. Like, how many fucking people come in here that can afford like a $30 meat meal at some shitty fucking restaurant or bar right. that doesn't even really have seating space, right? How many people are going to recognize like what this was built on, you know? Yeah. I yeah. totally never thought about that like warehouse aesthetic before. That's totally what yeah. it is. They're all warehouses. Yeah. They're all warehouses. They're all warehouses yeah. Dude. I went to high school in that area and this is before when I was in high school, this is before Pont City Market was a thing. It was before the area had started to gentrify. And the interesting thing about that neighborhood is literally it's one of those other side of the tracks conversations, like Monroe turns into Boulevard. Monroe is the side where Piedmont Park is with all the, you know, nice, lovely big houses and white families. And then Boulevard is where historically there was Section 8 housing, lots of poor people, lots of black people. And so my mom, when she would drive me to school, because I didn't live in in that area, I was a commuter kid. We would drive by what was the former Pont City Market, which was a huge abandoned building. And we would always talk about like, this would be a dope place for like affordable housing or apartments. And then I left for college. I actually lived in New York for a couple of years. And then when I would come back to visit, I was like, what is this monstrosity? Like they yeah. turned yeah. this abandoned yeah. building, yeah. not into anything helpful for the community, but like you can play putt-putt on uh-huh. the roof yeah. with yeah. a- for, like, for $50. For $50? Like, who is this for? Dude, that, that reminds me of, uh, before, we, before we transition, you know, that just reminds me of, and let me know if y'all feel the same way. Like, I really hate that Mercedes-Benz Stadium oh, yeah. because it really feels like a pimple or a zit on the skyline of the it's city. Like, it's just it's disgusting and like it's so ugly and like what it what it took to even like build that there you know Mm -hmm. like it's just like god it's so fucking immoral like i don't want to moralize about it but that's why they don't win games in there (laughs) it looks like i don't (laughs) it looks like i don't know if you guys uh, heard the comic books or anything i'm a nerd but it reminds me of like the legion of doom which is like the antithesis to the justice league it's just all the super villains like they're uh you it's know uh, rose gallery yeah it literally looks, it looks like, like a fucking, lair it was in a swamp bro it looks like a fucking lair yo it's like That's i could say it. choice words about what we should do with that thing but you know no uh, that, that place is cursed nah. and, and i have to drag at any opportunity i can arthur blank arthur blank and the arthur blank foundation because they Fuck are him. yeah that man single-handedly just ruins different pockets of Atlanta with his projects. He, he's the owner of the, uh, of the, of the uh, Falcons. Of the Falcons. Yeah. yeah, yeah of the Falcons. Yeah. And he has his whole foundation. They have, um, he works a lot with groups that do like neighborhood revitalization projects, but essentially they're just products of gentrification. So he'll invest his money into a community, come in, build a YMCA and say like, I've just like bestowed the greatest honor upon this community by coming in and displacing everyone and building a YMCA. Yeah. And so yeah. or Mercedes- build like a, you know, fund a statue of like Martin Luther King or some shit like that. Exactly. And then yeah. have the YMCA <laughs> host like APD student after school activities. Christ. Yeah. Like it's a whole it's a whole mess. That's so yeah. insidious, yo. So, so like kind of close out, I want to ask you guys, uh, because you are uh, members of Dark and Kelsey, again, you're the steering, uh, you're a member of the steering committee of DSA. Yes. Like, let's, let's, let's talk about like, what, what are y'all doing right now? And then we'll transition into, which is a harder question, 
All right, too, because I don't know the answer, but what is like a, an abolitionist society look like? But first of all, what are you guys doing in dark? Like, what have you guys been working on since the summer? Well, I'll tell you. Um, we've had we've had our monthly live panels ever since we we started last summer. Um, we have an upcoming one in the next two weeks, I think, on the criminalization of homelessness in Atlanta, which should mm. be like really relevant considering all of the horrible like APD sweeps that have been going on. Um, the way they treat our houseless population is disgusting. Talk, talk about that a little bit. What are these sweeps? What are they? What do they constitute? What are these ghouls doing? Um, I, as far as I know, and some of our members are more in the know about what's going on than I am, or Jasmine, I think. Um, but they they go to places where like the houseless population in Atlanta has like encampments, and they just steal everything. Basically, they just Jesus. take it. They take these person, these people's like where they live, all of the things they have and just sweep it off the street. And of course it's like part of the, the broader gentrification project. Do you want to say anything about that, Jasmine? No, I, mean, I think Kelsey hit all the points on that. Yeah. They, they come in and they throw all their stuff away, sleeping bags, like things that these people who don't have much need to actually survive on the streets be, and which they're on because the city refuses to provide affordable housing for folks. So mm-hmm. And, and on top of that, the mutual aid groups that, you know, bring food and water and stuff downtown on weekends, like they get harassed by the cops all the time. And it's so ironic because like these groups are trying to help and the, you know, the police who are all about safety are preventing these mutual aid groups from helping the houseless population. It's just like. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it wasn't there like recently like a, a law passed in the city that it's uh you get a fine for like, you know, like feeding or aiding anyone who's like unhoused, like which is insane. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. I think they got like a citation for it or something. Yeah. It's yeah. ridiculous. So I think they blamed yeah. it on COVID, but Jesus. We know the real reason. So sorry, Kelsey, I didn't want to detract too much oh, from yeah, like, what yeah, you guys yeah. are doing, but I think it's, again, with the project of gentrification, especially, I could do a whole episode on this, you know, yeah. especially like, you know, sweeping, like, you know, like homeless encampments, like it's something yeah. that people should pay attention to. But what else are you guys working on, especially given that last summer was, uh, you know, these, these uh, killings never stop. And last summer was definitely like, you know, incendiary, right? And I think yeah. it was the start of, I think that these these processes take time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I hate to tell anyone that we're not going to be storming the Capitol mm-hmm. like those morons mm-hmm. on the 6th, right? But, like, I think that what happened over the summer was, like, this incendiary kind of, like, event. And, like, what are you guys planning for the summer coming up? Because I don't see anything slowing down, or I hope it doesn't. I'll let Jasmine, let's talk about our demands. Yeah, so that's our big project, because obviously last year we did not successfully defund the police. <laughs> so we're back at it again. We'll be back at it until... We finally win. Um, but yeah, we are in the process of putting together a set of demands that both um, take money out of policing and put them into other social services that are important. So we talk a lot about affordable housing, obviously support for unhoused populations, food security programs, um, preschool and after school educational opportunities for children. And then beyond just the budget itself, also just taking the power away from police. Um, so demilitarizing, taking away their weapons, period, um, ending qualified immunity. A lot of the things that 
are included in the reform narrative, but don't kind of go the full step towards actual abolition. So we're trying to Mm -hmm. explain that, yes, we want to abolish the police, but we understand that it's going to be a process. So what are the things that we can actually do that will reduce the police's ability Mm -hmm. to harm people in the process of abolition? That's really what we're focused on. Um, on the defund side. Providing a framework. Exactly, exactly. Um, And then, yeah, we are working with our partner organizations and other activists and campaigns in this space to kind of socialize those demands, get feedback so we can make sure that what we're proposing is reflective of what communities actually need. That's part of why we canvas a lot because we want people to see their needs reflected in the things that we're, you know, demanding from city council. Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of our big project. We have a lot of other work that kind of feeds into that. But ultimately, we're here to get rid of APD. (laughs) So so let me ask you a question. And uh, this is, you know, this question, I don't think anyone, any organizer can answer this like, you know, with like, you know, uh, 12 easy steps. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, what what are what are the steps then that you guys are making to um, propose this? to city council, right? Because it's one thing to have a list of demands within an organization. It's another thing to communicate that to people. And then another thing to create a, a, a mass force that's strong enough, at least, where people show the fuck up at city council meetings, right? To demand that these 10 demands be not just acknowledged, but passed, right? A, a sustained movement of working people, right? Who live in the communities. I think that's precisely why we're canvassing, because I think a lot of leftists, a lot of millennial leftists right now in the COVID era get really trapped in the cycle of just like angry tweeting. You know, you yeah, angry yeah, tweet yeah, yeah, all yeah, your yeah, feelings yeah. out. I'm guilty but, of this. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> and, um, it, you know, it really takes getting offline and speaking to your neighbors and speaking to Indeed. your family. Speak to your mom oh, yeah. about abolition. Like, I've been doing that and it's painful as fuck. Like, it's terrible. But like, you got to do it. And if we're not like out speaking to regular people, our neighbors, whoever, our coworkers, then there's no way to create a mass movement where like the majority majority of people are actually on board with the concept of abolition. We can't just depend on elected officials to get things done. We need like actual masses of people on board with this concept. And and at the same time, I think a huge recognition for us over this past year has been no matter how many people call city council and say that they want the police defunded or they want the Atlanta city detention center to be closed. If the people in power are jailers by heart, by, you know, have a love for incarceration and a love for Looking policing. Looking at you, Pat Labatt. Exactly. They will not listen, <laughs> <Call> right? <them laughs> so these elected officials, as much as they want to tote, this is what the people want. No, we leave six hours of public comment damn near every time we have the opportunity telling you what we want and you choose not to do it anyway. So what that means is now that we have elections coming up, you're not coming back, sweetie. Like, you will not be a city council person again. You will not be the mayor again. Oh, yeah. And so part of what we're doing is we're trying to support candidates who explicitly take on defund um, and abolitionist policy platforms um, and get out the people who are blocking progress. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to shout out uh, Rogelio. Rogelio. Um, yeah. Who was uh, running. What, what district is he running for? District again? four. Mm-hmm. 
District 4, yeah. And he's running against... Cleno Winslow. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, man. I've been through many... I hate all of these goals, but I've been They're through many terrible. a city council meeting. Yeah, yeah. Andre Dickens is probably like the... One of the more... Is he still is he still at large? He's, yeah, uh, he's still yeah. at yeah. large. Okay, he's city pretty council, neutral. Yeah. He's yeah. in the middle. He, yeah, when, when I was like... He would actually like listen to us and like, mm-hmm. you know, like listen to committee members and like, you know, organizations, but... Yeah, they're all ghouls. So, like, shout yeah. out to Rahelia. Hopefully, I'll have an interview oh coming God. up from soon. We need uh, Rahelia. Yeah. Yes, we need Rahelia. We need Rahelio. him. VoteRahelio.com, Yes. Donate. <laughs> hell yeah, hell yeah. I'll drop that in the, uh, in the show notes, too. So, to kind of end this off with this really broad, expansive question that uh, involves, in my opinion, involves more than just seizing the means of production, but it's like a shift in social consciousness. With the work that you guys are doing now with uh, defund as a road to abolition, what is what does abolition actually look like? You know, because I made a tweet the other day uh, where somebody said I was I said that if you're not you can't be an anti-capitalist without being an abolitionist. And somebody said, well, there are socialist countries who uh, have police forces. And, you know, despite the fact like, first of all, it's like, I mean, I could go off on that, but let's just let's just imagine. Right. Especially in the United States where police as you guys have noted, we're not only like descended from slave catchers, but also union busters in the North, right? Striking workers. Let's talk about like uh, what this horizon, right? That we're aiming for beyond defund. What, is, what does that look like to you guys? Well, I think, you know, a common narrative or a way that abolition is, spent, is spun is it's not simply the destruction of the present industrial complex. It's creating a world where everybody actually has like the tools they need to thrive. They have the resources mm. they need. Abolition is about, I don't know, we just need to like imagine, imagine that we actually have the conditions that prevent people from committing quote unquote crimes in the first place. And I, say, and I think a first step in that is disassociating ourselves from money being the ultimate reward or incentive for our lives. Like, Hell yeah. I have a lot of conversations with like the boomer generation of people. And one of my, one of the people that I work with who's of that generation was telling me like, well, if we get rid of capitalism, then like what incentive does somebody have to be a doctor? If they could, you know, just be a gardener and make the same amount of money. And I was like, cause to they heal love the body? medicine. <laughs> right. Cause they, they yeah, actually they heal the body. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I was like, maybe it'd be great if we could think about, incentives as joy like the things that actually spending our lives doing things that we love to do that bring us joy that bring us community bring us closer to the people that we love and have care for and he was like oh wow and it's like so many we're just socialized to never even consider that we could just Mm -hmm. be happy like we are Mm -hmm. always we're just climbing this ladder constantly or being told that we should be attaining all of these material things. And we don't, we're not always given the space to stop and think about what life could look like differently. So to Kelsey's point, abolition is really about dreaming. It's about imagining. It's not about a couple of people coming in and being prescriptive about what society looks like. It's mm-hmm. a project that we all have to participate in together in order for it to be something that we experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like that. Hell yeah, yo. I always try to end, uh, yo, people are going to get tired of me saying this if they listen to podcasts, but I always try to end on a, a positive note, you know? And uh, I think that like, I mean, even with the, and actually we could kind of close out talking about this because this is very recent. Uh, it's not local to Atlanta, but uh, the Derek Chauvin trial, right? And the uh, the conviction, you know? The, the fact that I think it's left us uh, 
and everyone in America really due to alienation, right? Like you, you get really disillusioned, right? And it causes people to not only be cynical, but we're not talking about just voting, right? But again, talking to your neighbors, talking to your coworkers, right? And uh, I guess one of my fears, right, um, with this, uh, this incident like uh, Derek Chauvin getting convicted is that it seems to me throwing him to the wolves and sacrificing him in order to maintain this racial capitalist like system of policing because if they didn't especially after everything that happened over the summer you know and then biden is also president right mm-hmm. it's no longer trump we have like a uh, daddy's in you know he's gonna take his big you know patriarchal arms and like hold us tightly <laughs> and tell us it's okay it's like i'm worried that people will get like um uh placated yeah. Not disillusioned, actually. The mm-hmm. opposite, but quite placated. Mm-hmm. W- what did you guys think of that? Yeah. That night, the dark court organizers were supposed to have a meeting, and it just turned into a big vet session. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. About, about oh. that, exactly. We really needed that. Yeah. And I think there were, you know, there were all these cries like, jail killer cops, as if that somehow some kind of took solution to this systemic institutional problem. I could think you know? of a lot worse things than jail, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. In Minecraft, exactly. you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but before that stuff, let me chill. Let me, let me reel back a little bit. Yes, 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 yes. That's for the Patreon. Exactly. So it's not going to fix any of the systemic issues to jail one bad cop, you know? I mean, first of all, how many cops have, have murdered people that have not been sent to jail, not been convicted? And second of all, I think calling for the jailing of killer cops as abolitionists is really contradictory. And it reinforces this notion, the bad apple idea of policing and completely like, you know, like, like, it doesn't hold the entire system of policing accountable, exactly. which by nature... It doesn't indict the entire system. Exactly. Right. Like, it's racist by nature. It's violent yes. by nature. It's not just yes. Derek Chauvin. Three people on average per day were killed by the police throughout the duration of Derek Chauvin's trial. And during Jesus the announcement Christ, yeah. of his yeah. conviction, Makia Bryant, Mikia a Bryant. child, yeah. was killed by police. So it's Jesus like... fucking Christ. I don't know... If we, if anyone can even feel placated, even if, even if you're not an abolitionist, right? Even mm-hmm. if you're just against cops killing people, they're still doing it, right? And like Derek Chauvin going to prison didn't stop Makia from being murdered. So no. there's a larger movement that we have to keep sustaining. Like we can't, the system will give what looks like small wins, what looks like small reforms. It will not concede power. We have to take that shit. So I just hope that people find that energy. Right. We all have to just keep that energy. Like we can't, we can't let our foot off the gas. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yo, y'all, this was, this was tight as hell, man. Like I knew this was going to be dope, but holy shit, this was really fucking cool. And actually, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working with, uh, kind of involved with the world thought police which i'm sure is one mm-hmm. of the groups that you guys are engaged with yeah. man and mm-hmm. i just wanna i'm not like a sectarian you know i have my <laughs> own like political views and subtenancy but at the end of the day i just want to extend myself to any organization and folks that are actually like willing to let not only struggle right for the short-term goal of defunding the police but actually willing to fight for the long term for abolition right so Hell yeah. Uh, before before I let y'all go, man, do you guys have anything at all to plug so that people can, uh, and I'll put in the show notes so that people can, uh, you know, connect with your uh, content, with the writing mm-hmm. that you guys have done, the research especially? Yeah, I would say definitely check out our website, darkatl.com, D-A-R-C, A-T-L. 
Um, and we have monthly panels. So our next one is coming up in the next week on the decriminal or the criminalization of homelessness. And on mm. June 5th, if you live in the Atlanta area, we are planning another canvas. So if you want to come out, um, just uh, follow our social media. It's all at Dark ATL. Shit, I might come out, man. Yeah. Yeah, no, Shit, you should I might come, come out. Man. Come I'll join you. I might join you, man. The last one was amazing. We had women on the rise come. There were over oh, 30 yeah. people. It was just, it was Hell a beautiful yeah. experience. Yeah, and we are yeah, also dude. super accessible for people who don't feel like they have the full theory down or like are still trying to figure out how they feel about abolition. We have a reading group that we do that's kind of political education focused. So we have our first session um, for this new book that we're reading. We do this until we free us by Mary Macaba, like abolitionist mm. in chief out here. Um, and we're going to read part one of that and discuss it starting this Wednesday. But even if folks don't have the book or they're not super into reading, still come through. We end up just kind of kicking it, chatting about what a better world could look like. Oh, yeah. And, and before I let y'all go again, do you guys have any personal uh, social media or accounts that you uh, used, not for the clout, but that you guys <laughs> actually used to kind of form people and especially get people plugged into organizing? Only uh, or our personal accounts or the dark yeah. accounts? Um, no, the first. The, I'll link the dark accounts too, but any personal accounts you want to just like, because I don't know, like sometimes like I think that uh, to me, it's uh, there's one thing where there's an account for an organization, but sometimes I think that individuals themselves, especially myself, right? Uh, not only plug people in, but kind of have takes, right? Mm, uh, mm-hmm. That are a little more kind of nuanced and kind of personalized that I think people should, especially from you guys, given the conversation that we just had, mm-hmm. right? Especially for people to kind of like kind of ease into this, especially if they're kind of ambivalent, you know what I mean? Gotcha. Well, if anybody wants to follow me, warning, I shit post. You want to. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah, if you want to. Um, oh, have- shit posting is not practice, but it's helpful. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. It's It's humor, you know? Um, at B-O-N-K-E-H-O-D-E-C underscore. Wow. Shit, I can't even, I wanted to verbalize, like, I wanted to verbalize what you said, yeah. and I couldn't even do it, yeah. It's not putting a word together. <laughs> I, I stepped away from Twitter because Good. it was too much information <laughs> coming at me all at one time. I was like, there are so many problems with this world that I can't interact with all the time. But I'm on Instagram, jburr 23 me cool you, you you did very well jasmine by stepping away from twitter because it is a deeply <laughs> mm-hmm. diseased place yeah yeah uh, it is. it's fun though <laughs> but sometimes this negative outweighs the jokes so it's bad for your brain <laughs> if you can smoke weed and if you like to smoke weed get high enough and be fine <laughs> yo, thank you again kelsey and jasmine so much yo and i'll, I'll put a link to all of that in the show notes for people to check out and uh i really appreciate this yo this was tight as fuck yeah this awesome. thanks for having thank us you. Oh, yeah, oh yeah and come to our campus yes i actually will i will come to the campus i promise yes. i will not i, I promise myself because i've been feeling guilty for not uh, doing shit but uh you guys are actually out there like you know doing the hard fucking work that hopefully uh, this episode will get more people in the Atlanta area to be curious and actually, like, you know, plug in. I hope yeah. so. And oh, we're yeah. cool people, okay. too. So that's yes, another plus. Fun. And as our comrade Nora says, also on the core team, all of us are 11s. Like, all abolitionists <laughs> are hot. Yeah. You're so actually you. fine as hell if you're an abolitionist. So that helps. DSA Hot Caucus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Oh, yeah. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash adampod and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates. 